Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 134, The Russian Imperial Army. Last time, we covered a few of the important Russian generals during the Napoleonic era, and I know I promised to go over the lives of the big three of the time, Detoli, Kutuzov, and Bagrashon. But instead, I thought it prudent to go over a history of the Russian Imperial Army before I get into them. First, though, I'd like to thank listeners Sandra and Thomas for their generous donations to the podcast. It is because of people like you that I can continue the journey into recounting the history of Russia. And if anybody would like, it would be greatly appreciated if any of my other listeners could help out as well. Just go to my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com and click on the PayPal button. Thanks. Now, let's get on to the topic at hand. It was under Peter the Great that the Russian Imperial Army came into being, but before we get into that, let's go back even further and discuss the state of the Russian army prior to his reign. Russian armies, for the most part in the early 1100s, were small bands of men loyal to a local prince or knyaz. This was the time of Kievan Rus, and the military was modeled after the Viking raiders of Rurik. But this was not unusual for the time. Now, the big change as we know, came in two waves, 1237 and 1240, with the invasion of the Mongols. Interesting, and this is a fact I did not know before, but the Mongol invasion was done in the winter, as the invaders found that the frozen lakes and rivers were preferable for their cavalry to the marshy grounds of the spring and summer. Now, the Mongols gave the Russians two choices, surrender and give service to their new masters, or die. Some did choose the former, but many the latter, and those that selected surrender, though, were taught in the way of the horde. The Mongols were masters of the horse, which is why the Russian cavalry became world-renowned. The open-order cavalry attack that the Russians used for over 700 years was known as the lava, which comes from the Mongol word lao, which expresses the idea of convergence. This standard formation was used against the French in 1812, the Germans in World War I, and then the Russian Civil War. This Mongol formation of 1240 was still in use during the Soviet times and World War II. In the many years during the Mongol yoke, Russian military men, basically the Grand Princes, tried to figure out how to throw off the yoke and assert their independence. They couldn't use cavalry as a main weapon, as they were simply not good enough or numerous enough to fight off their masters. They had to find something that would make their forces superior, and they discovered the one thing that made the Mongols scared, artillery. The main weapon of the Mongols was the composite bow, which had a long and accurate range. A stone slab found in Siberia had the following inscription on it, which describes the range, quote, while Genghis Khan was holding an assembly of Mongolian dignitaries after his conquest of Sartaul, Yusungi, the son of Genghis Khan's brother, shot an arrow at 335 alts. That equates to 536 meters, quite a distance. The use of artillery is what aided the Russians in throwing off the Mongol yoke because it had a greater distance. And we have to understand it wasn't just a single battle that threw off the yoke, like the one at Kulikova, fought by Grand Prince Dmitri and his army, but a continuous fight fought from the 1380s past the official date of victory at the Great Stand on the Ugra River in 1480, but well into the reign of Ivan the Terrible and beyond. 
Because of the effectiveness of the artillery, Russia was to be known for its highly skilled men in the field of battle, even in losing wars like the Korean, Crimean conflict and the Russo-Japanese War. It was under Ivan IV that the Russian military began to take shape as a coherent and permanent force. Ivan created the Strelsi, which served as his musketeers, and the Pushkari as the gunner units. These were professional units, which joined with the Oriental cavalry to form a formidable army. This would go on until changes began to be made under Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich in 1645 through 1676. By this time, the Strelsi had become totally unruly and very unreliable, as was seen during the early years of Peter the Great. The Thirty Years' War, for from 1618 to 1648, was a series of wars principally fought in Central Europe. It was one of the longest and most destructive conflicts in European history, and one of the longest continuous wars in modern history. It, along with the British Civil War of 1639 through 51, provided a force of mercenaries to Russia. How did these wars do that, you might ask? Well, there were a lot of men who fought on the losing side and were fearful of retribution from the victors, so they decided that moving to Russia and working with them was a better idea than staying put and getting executed for backing the wrong side. One such man, General Patrick Gordon, was to be an important aide and friend to Alexei's son, Peter the Great. Before Peter came into power, the Strelsi supported his sister Sophia, and they'd killed a number of Peter's relatives, which led to his general hatred of them. So it would be Peter who would make the biggest change to the Russian military, and it was he who was credited with creating the Imperial Russian Army. He decided to create an army based on the Western European model, including a system of conscription. Previously, the nobility would be required to supply men, which was supplemented by peasants during times of war. This was unacceptable to Peter, who, because of his travels during the Great Embassy, saw that Russia was highly vulnerable technologically if they were ever to be invaded by the growing threats in Europe. And the first threat, of course, to come was the Swedes, led by Charles XII. Peter, as you may recall from way back in episode 32, lost his first major battle against the Swedes at Narva in 1700. But that loss was to be a blessing in disguise. Peter was not one to take loss sitting down. He would learn from it and not make the same mistakes again. Nine years later, at Poltava, he reversed his previous defeat and routed Charles and his army, repulsing their invasion. By 1716, the Russian army had established a set of regulations known as the Ustav Voinsky. This set a number on the size of the army and how it was formed. They set the number of permanent soldiers at 112,000 men. 70,000 would be assigned to the infantry, with 38,000 in the cavalry, and 4,000 artillerymen. By the time of the Seven Years' War, which was fought between 1756 and 1763, the Russian Imperial Army had around 330,000 men now. Russian General Saltikov had led a combined Russian and Austrian army to defeat Frederick the Great at the Battle of Junersdorf on August 12, 1759. The following year, Russian cavalry even entered the city of Berlin. They were now considered a true European power. In 1763, the idea of a Russian general staff was formed, which would be critical in two conflicts. One was, of course, the Napoleonic War, 
And the other one was actually nine. Yes, nine Russo-Turkish wars. These nine wars took place in 1676 through 81, 1686 through 1700, 1710 to 13, 1735 to 39, 1768 to 74, 1787 to 1801, 1806 through 1812, 1828 and 29, and 1877 and 78. Obviously, a lot of animosity between these two countries. And this doesn't even include the other wars fought with the Turks, the Crimean War and World War I. It was during the 5th and 6th Russo-Turkish Wars that the army really came into its own. This is where Rumantsev, Kutuzov, and Suvorov cut their teeth, so to say. They learned how to win and conquer superior numbers, which set them up for the successes against Napoleon. Unfortunately, there was a short period of time when the military kind of faltered a bit between the relaxed time of Grigory Potemkin and the Prussian militarism of Tsar Paul. His goose-stepping military was the one that got routed at Austerlitz in 1805 because Paul's son Alexander did not listen to his generals like Kutuzov. After the defeat, Tsar Alexander I decided, you know, maybe listening to his battle-hardened generals was a good idea, which led to their eventual victory in 1812 through 1814. When Russian soldiers entered Paris in 1814, it marked the pinnacle of Russian power, which was not matched until the Soviets won World War II over Germany 130 years later. I'm going to go back a bit again. Let's talk about the idea of conscription or draft, which supposedly started in 1699 by Peter I. There is some strong evidence that his father Alexei started it, but it is Peter who most historians give the real credit to. The evidence I saw, though, tells me that we need to give much more credit to Alexei than has been given previously. When the Imperial Army started, the term of service was life. The only way out was death or when you became injured or too old to fight. It was a brutal life for the average soldier, as the Russian idea of discipline was repeated beatings to toughen you up whether you did anything wrong or not. The length of service was seen to be detrimental in recruiting men, and bribes were often given to get out of service by the wealthier members of society. It also led to a high percentage of desertions as well. The draft was based on the number of households in the settlement, but that was later changed to basing it on overall population numbers. Peter also changed something that was very, very important in my eyes, and that was who could become an officer. Previously, only boyars or noblemen could attain a higher rank. This Western-thinking czar would have none of that, and I wish he would have taught Alexander III and Nicholas II this lesson, but that we'll talk about a little later. He knew that oftentimes being a noble didn't always train, you know, translate into being a good officer. Under Peter's rule, if a person made it to an officer's rank, they would be given a noble title although Catherine II thought otherwise, and she would abolish this part of the system during her reign. As you may have noticed, I haven't made mention of the Russian Imperial Navy. The reason is, it never really became a powerful force, despite how hard Peter tried. The Navy was never anything but a support to the army. Its power waxed and waned for hundreds of years, until it became a force to be reckoned with during the post-World War II Soviet times. Now let's get to the uh, list of the ranks of the army. First, most recruits began as a private first class. 
Next up was Corporal, followed by Sergeant, Master Sergeant, Warrant Officer, and lastly, Probationary Ensign. From here we go into the Officer Corps, for those men who showed something special. The first step was as an Ensign, then Sub-Lieutenant, then Lieutenant, Staff Captain, Captain, Major, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, and finally Brigadier. The next stage, though, was for a very special few. The first stage was Major General, then Lieutenant General, General of the Infantry, Artillery or Cavalry, and finally the highest rank of General, Field Marshal. In Russian history, there were only 45 people who achieved the highest rank. Some of the names that reached the peak of the General Corps included Grigory Potemkin, Alexander Suvorov, Kutuzov, Wittgenstein, Barclay de Tolly, Grand Dukes Mikhail Nikolaevich and Nicholas Nikolaevich. Following the Napoleonic era, the Russian military pretty much sat on their laurels, fighting the Turks over and over, but not really upgrading their weapons. When the Crimean War came about, the weakness of the military became painfully apparent. Alexander II decided that military reforms that while on the surface looked promising, we now know that these reforms were said to be the catalyst that caused the Russian Revolution of 1917. The Minister of War, Count Dmitry Milyutin, was the man that the Tsar called upon to institute reform. In the 20 years in office, Milyutin implemented a large number of changes, including the abolishment of the conscription of children, changing the system of the draft entirely by making service in the military mandatory for all 20-year-old males and reducing the number of years in service to six with a nine-year reserve period. He also divided Russia into military districts, which by 1913 numbered 13. Also, for the first time, the army finally lived in barracks instead of dugouts and shacks of the past. The reform, according to some historians, was a disaster for the Romanovs. In the past, town elders could send radical young people into the army and away from the villagers. Now, the young men could come back and spread revolutionary ideas. This is a minority opinion, and one that you know, I'm a little skeptical about, because I think that the real reason for the spread of revolutionary ideas was born directly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, with so many officers and soldiers returning from Europe to Russia, and noticing the incredibly grand differences. They realized that Russia was still a backward country and that things needed change. Now I want to get to that thing I mentioned a little while ago. In the final years of Alexander III and early years of Nicholas II, the military began to deteriorate for a number of reasons, not least of all due to the massive reduction in its budget. From 1881 to 1902, the Army's share of the total budget fell to 18% of the total economy from 30. Compared to its eventual enemies, Germany and Austria-Hungary, now they spent 57 to 63% respectively on the military. Another problem for the army was morale, as it spent most of its time putting down revolts in their own country. Now, they did it violently, and just think about that. You're shooting on your own people. And they estimated that there were over 1,500 major protests that needed military intervention between 1883 to 1903. And we know the next year, in 1904, Russia went to war with Japan. 
And despite the poor conditions, the Russians were actually a pretty impressive and powerful force. The inevitability of their loss was not as great as I once thought. They had fantastic artillery and a really brave and excellent soldiers. The real problem with this war was General Kuropotkin, the former war minister. His idea for the war, which was one that most military men in the world no longer held in great esteem, was that you fight a single decisive battle. Had he decided to fight along a wide front, the Japanese would have been totally unable to fight that kind of war due to a lack of resources. Now, the second problem was how to get the vast resources of Russia and their supplies to the front lines. Despite Milyutin's push to expand the rail lines, the Tsars didn't feel that it was that necessary. So when they fought the Russo-Japanese War, supplies had to be sent via an incomplete single-track railway of about 4,000 miles or 6,400 kilometers. Russia had formidable resources, as it does today, but the real problem is the logistics and how to get the resources to the battlefield along such a huge nation. We know how the inferior Russian Navy fared after traveling across the world, but the army did show themselves to be actually superior to the Japanese, especially at the siege at Port Arthur, where the men could have easily held off attack, but were forced to surrender prematurely, mainly due to the 8,000-kilometer line of communications from St. Petersburg. Also, both Alexander III and Nicholas II relied more on the nobility to become officers and leaders instead of basing elevations on merit. This was partly to change under War Minister Vladimir Sukhomlinov. He wanted to change the infantry from one relying on bayonets, sabers, and rifles to a more modern one, increasing the average soldier's firepower. He also really pushed the merit system, which put him into conflict with the Russian nobility. Remember, this is the time of Rasputin and a high society which loved nothing better than to spread rumors about people who didn't follow their agenda or kowtow to them. As author Norman Stone puts it in his book, The Eastern Front, 1914 to 1917, quote, Sokolmanov, as a sort of uniformed Rasputin, belongs to the demonology of 1917. But the case against him is far from watertight. At the start of World War I, Sukhomlinov was never trusted by the Army Committee of the Duma, led by Alexander Guchov. He was also resented by Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolaevich of Russia, who was commander-in-chief of the Russian forces in the first phase of World War I. So many of the changes that Sukhomlinov wanted to implement were not fully carried out. When we look at the at the performance of the Russian army during the war, we often talk about their numerous failures, but in reality, they were successful more often than we were led to believe. They consistently beat the armies of Austria-Hungary and fought the Germans to a standstill on numerous occasions. The Russian soldier was feared by their enemies as being extremely brave and ferocious. It was the poor quality of the commanders that cost them the war and eventually brought down the Romanovs. I lay the failures directly on the shoulders of the arrogance of Alexander III and the idea of the superiority of the nobility over the common Russian peasant and the merit system. Still, some of the changes implemented by Sokolmanov did lead to a large cadre of competent military officers in the lower ranks, but many of them were not to be of any benefit to the Tsar. Instead, many of them went over to the Red Army, like Tukhachevsky, Shapashnikov, Zhukov, 
and Rokoskovsky. But that is a story for another time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as I guarantee that I will cover the big three generals of the Napoleonic era, Titoli, Bagration, and Kutuzov. Now, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History page, where you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a message. So now, as always, das vidanya, и спасибо большое.